This is our fourth lesson in our series on the fear of man. So we want to um, ask God to guide us as we go through this study. Make sure everybody gets one. And do we have some writing utensils as well? We can find, usually have a ragtag thing of writing utensils around here. All right. Beautiful day here in the hill country. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today just amazed that you love us. And Lord, as we uh, go through this study on the fear of man, um, I pray that you would take down um, the pretense and the mask and uh, how we want to be ourselves and let your spirit deal with who we are. Father, we're grateful that you are God and that you love us in spite of who we are uh, and that you love us so that we can become who you are and that your love is patient and kind and at times pointed and yet gentle to continue to mold and shape and shave off the rough spots in our life because of sin. So, Father, this morning we just uh, lay ourselves on your table and ask that your spirit that dwells in us, if we're yours, will be free to move and point out and show us areas of our life that we need to address by the power of your spirit, by your grace. Father, we're grateful for your word. Uh, We're grateful for its teaching and rebuking and correcting and training instruction in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're into our fourth lesson on the fear of man. And um, let's go to Romans chapter 1 quickly here. Romans 1 kind of shares the problem and why we're all in the mess we're in as far as sin. Romans 1.21 says, For though, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, the problem with sin is we make this great exchange. We make this great exchange for the glorious, infinite, immortal God. And we exchange him for, in the case of this study today, man. And the problem with the fear of man is the focus of our life is people. And what are they going to think? And how's that going to affect me? Instead of the focus of our life being on Christ, on God and who he knows we are, we deal with people and who they think we are, and we work really hard to give the right impression, which is really silly when you think about it. It's kind of like a little child 
when he's in a light room and he closes his eyes and he said, now you can't see me. That's the way we are when we deal with, with the fear of man. We can put on whatever pretense we want to with other people. We can give whatever impression we want with other people. The reality is God knows us, doesn't he? All the way down to the bone. And so the goal here of this series is for us to move our fear from man to God. So we've had that first lesson on the fear of man, just a general introduction. Uh, then we had a session on the fear of God and the importance of that and what that produces in our lives. So we're going to move toward more of a God-centered view of our life and how we're evaluated and not so much of men. But this isn't going to be easy because the fear of man is really entrenched. Um, and so we are going to deal with that today. If you have your study guide, we'll get started here. Um, the fear of man is also known as people-pleasing or a love of approval. I'm trying to find enough room up here for all my stuff. So the problem is um, a priority comes with us, a pleasing people or an approval, looking for their approval in whatever case that situation may be. Um, the problem with that is this is sin. This is not just a little, little mistake. This is sin because our focus is not on God. It's now on, on people. What do you think the root sin of the fear of man is? Pride. It is pride. Pride is the root of all sin, isn't it? And what is pride? Pride is the desire to lift ourselves up, to exalt ourselves, and to put others down. Lou Priola once said, The sin of pride, which is at the heart of being a people-pleaser, is an insidious thing. Like a cataract that slowly covers the eye of its victim, pride keeps us from seeing our sins, thus preventing us from properly dealing with them. That's why people-pleasing is a problem, is because we don't see it. We don't view it that way. And so we're going to try to spend some time diagnosing it today. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to the DMV to get your driver's license... And they say, would you look in this little box over here? And you go, I'm good. I can see really well. And you look in that box, and they say, read line number 51. And you're going, what line is that? I can't even see line 51. We don't realize that we have a problem until we're tested, right? So today, just, just think about this as an eye examination or a fear of man examination as we walk through um, this lesson. So it covers us over. And the problem with pride is pride makes us completely ineffective for God. The fear of man makes us completely ineffective for the, for the use of God. Let's look at um, page 175. We did a men's meeting. Pride seems to be the theme this weekend. Um, we were in chapter 13 of, of Husband's Resolve, Humility and Service. And we spent a long time talking about pride and how that keeps us from being servants. 
If we don't have humility, we're not going to serve. And pride is the restraining thing of that. Here's what um, Stuart Scott says. He says, it's probably safe to say that humility is the one character quality that will enable us to be all Christ wants us to be. We cannot come to God without it. Think about that. How do you come to God unless we come humbly? So there's no salvation unless we're humbled because of the Holy Spirit. We cannot love God supremely without it because if we have pride, guess who we love? Self. And God simply becomes somebody who supports us in our life. We cannot be an effective witness for Christ without it. And why would that be? Because we're afraid of what people will what? Think. We cannot love and serve our wives without it. Because again, if, 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 if we are consumed with pride, then guess where the focus is? It's here. We cannot lead, lead in, in a godly way without it. We cannot enjoy physical intimacy the way God intended it to be. We cannot communicate properly without it. We cannot resolve conflict without it. Con- there's no way conflict's ever going to be resolved when there's pride. It's not going to happen because you're always right and never open to another position. Um, we especially resist, cannot resist sin without it. So pride is a is something we all hate. It's all something we carry with us. That's the challenge of it. It's the Trojan horse within as we walk through our lives. So let's talk about the most common fear of all. We've talked about the fear of being exposed last week. And this week we're going to talk about the most common fear. What is the most common fear, do we think? should know that because it's on the top of our page here. No surprises there. It's the fear of what? Rejection. Absolutely. There's this innate fear within us of being rejected by somebody else. And we have all experienced that in one way, shape, or form. And it was unpleasant. And therefore, we want to avoid it in any way that we can. And when, in the book, and we're going to be pulling from three sources here today. Uh, we are obviously working through a series on the fear of man that Capitol Hill Baptist Church put together. And they basically used Lou Priola's book on people-pleasing. And they also used uh, Ed Welch's book on when, when people are big and God is small. And so those sources are what we're going to be using as we walk through this session. So Ed Welch makes this comment, closely related to the fear that people will expose us is perhaps the most common reason we are controlled by other people. They can reject, ridicule, and despise us. They don't invite us to the party. They ignore us. They don't like us. They aren't pleased with us. They withhold the acceptance, love, or significance we want from them. And as a result, we can feel worthless. So there's a real concern for that uh, in our lives is of being accepted. Um, fear of rejection and the desire for approval, which are two sides of the same coin, is one of Satan's most significant ways of undermining our effectiveness as believers. This fear of rejection and desire for approval will cause us, instead of doing what God calls us to do, it will cause us to do what pleases the people around us. And unfortunately, pleasing people and pleasing God don't run on the same track. 
Wouldn't that be nice if it did? But it doesn't. The desire to please him is overruled by the desire to please others. This is the problem here. We have been bought with the blood of Christ. We've been called to be his servants. We've been called to obey his word. And our people-pleasing and our desire for acceptance will cause us to compromise obedience to him for obedience to people. One of my most favorite Puritan pastors, Richard Baxter, spoke of this nearly 350 years ago. Uh, In a writing he called Directions Against Inordinate Man-Pleasing. Isn't that a nice title? In it, he writes about the bankruptcy of living for the acceptance of people. If your life is controlled with having to be accepted by people, it is going to be a miserable road indeed. This is what he says. Remember what a life of unquietness and continual vexation you choose if you place your peace or happiness in the goodwill or word of man. For having showed you how impossible a task you undertake... It must needs follow that the pursuit of it must be a life of torment. That's a nice description, isn't it? To engage yourselves in so great cares when you are sure to be disappointed. In other words, the pursuit of pleasing men is going to be a what? Failure. It will be a failure. It's not going to happen. To make that your end which you cannot attain to find that you labor in vain and daily meet with displeasure instead of favor you expected. Must needs be a very grievous life. You are like one that dwelleth on the top of a mountain and yet cannot endure the wind to blow upon him, or like him that dwelleth in a wood and yet is afraid of a shaking of a leaf. You dwell among a world of ulcerated selfish, contradictory, mutable, unpleasable minds, and yet you cannot endure their displeasure. Are you a magistrate? The people will murmur at you, and those that are most incompetent and incapable will be the the forwardest to censure you and think that they could govern much better than you, will say that you oppress them and the malefactors that are punished will say that you deal unmercifully with them, and those that have a cause near so unjust will say say you wrong them if it go not on their side. So all it takes to be on the bad side is to make a verdict as a magistrate that doesn't please everybody. This is why in our political system we try to be very vague about what we're going to do. And we give the impression that we're all going to help everybody get all the things they want in their life. This one hits a little more close to home. Are you pastor or teacher? You will seem too rough to one and too smooth to another. Yea, too rough to the same man when by reproof or censure you correct his faults, who censureth you as being too smooth as you deal with a friend to sinners, as a friend to sinners. So here's a man who's blaming you for being too smooth in how you're dealing with people in the flock. But when you come to point out his sin, now you're being too rough. Isn't that a surprise? When you are to deal in the case of others, no sermon that you preach is like to be pleased to all your hearers, nor any of your ministerial works. 
I was in a church one time where we had a man who had a very censorious spirit, and he would literally record, he would literally buy the recording of the sermon. He would go home and sit down, and he would verbatim write out the sermon, looking for errors. Bless the pastor of our church. So if we're looking to be pleasing every people, everybody, we can't do that. Are you lawyers? The clients that lost their case behind your backs will call you unconscionable and say you betrayed them. And those that prevailed will call you covetous and tell how much money you took from them and how little you did for it. So that it is no wonder that among the vulgar, your profession is a matter of their reproach. Isn't it true, though? No matter how hard we try to truly please people, we cannot please all the people all the time. As the great theologian Bill Cosby once said, I don't know the key to success, but the key to failure is to try to please everybody. And it's a life that will drive you crazy. So knowing this, we should be able to easily turn from the fear of opinions of others to the approval of God alone, right? Not so easily. Because people are around us all the time. And people give us verbal feedback and nonverbal feedback that lets us know whether they're approving of what we're doing in a whole host of areas. Okay? And the reality is people do reject us. This is why we do have that fear. Our experience has shown that no matter what we tried to do in certain scenarios, we never did the right thing. And it's a sting. It's painful. Uh, it causes us grief. Rejection hurts, doesn't it? doesn't feel good to receive the disapproving comment from a friend or, or to sense the not satisfaction of a parent and their expectations of you. But our purpose as Christians is not first and foremost about feeling right or being pleasant. It is about being right with God, believing right, and finally living right. If we can grasp this and we can begin to be concerned about God being our audience, it will set us free to live the way God wants us to live. Not saying you're not going to have conflict, not going to say you're going to have people happy with you. You've already said that's not going to happen. But it will set you free to do what God has called you to do. This is the key difference in the way Christians face fear of rejection. The world sees it as symptoms, and they try to find ways to solve that problem with us. The fear of man is sin that needs to be dealt with. And the only place we go to that is where? The cross. Christ died for us, and he accepted us. And he knows everything about us. So while you're looking everywhere for acceptance and approval, know this. He loves you. Warts and all. And he has forgiven you. And he's called you his child. Can't beat that. Even the people who, who he preys upon you don't know who you are. They don't know what you did last week. They don't know what you thought about. They don't know your motive behind what you're doing right now. But Christ knows us intimately, and he loves us. 
Okay? How do we manifest fear that other people will reject us? So here we are. We're on the examining table. We're going to do some tests. Okay? First one is we fear the displeasure of man more than the displeasure of God. When you find yourself in a situation where people are asking you to do something that does not line up with the Scripture and you choose to follow them, you're showing that you're more concerned about their displeasure than you are about God's. Let's all turn to John 12. Or it's right there in our, in our study notes, 42 through 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in Christ. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Underline this. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Wow. Here is the nation of Israel. Here are their religious leaders. Here, the Messiah who they waited for thousands of years to come shows up on the scene. And what do they do with that? Well, uh, in order to avoid conflict with the other religious leaders uh, and be disrespected, they chose to not acknowledge him as the Messiah. Yet don't we often do the, this, do the easy thing rather than the right thing in order to please those around us? How often do we get in conflict over our thoughts and what we're going to do based upon what people are going to think? Lou Priola observes, a people pleaser is not a peacemaker but rather a peace lover. A peacemaker is willing to endure the discomfort of a conflict in the hope of bringing about a peaceful resolution. Peace not only is the absence of conflict, but it's often the result of it. A lot of us want peace without having to deal with real issues or dealing with sin. We just hope everything's going to be okay. A peace lover is so afraid of conflict that he will avoid it at almost all costs. You kind of have this when you're in a relationship with somebody before you get married, don't you? You're in it, you're going along, and something kind of pops up. You go, ooh, what was that? And then they see you and they go, ooh, what was that? And you go, oh, I didn't see anything. We're okay. So we just keep moving down the road because the goal here is to have a perfect relationship where there's no what? Conflict, right? Well, you can only play that game so long, can't you? Because sooner or later, you're going to have to deal with the reality of each other's sin, and you're going to have to handle it. But, there's this, but we all don't like conflict. We all want to avoid at all costs. And even when we see stuff going on that shouldn't be going on, we still can go, oh, we don't want to have to deal with that. So I'll just pretend that everything's okay. He is so concerned about keeping the peace with his fellow man that he is often willing to forfeit the peace of God that comes from standing up and suffering for the truth. He is essentially a coward. 
at heart. There's a lot of us who will do whatever it takes to keep the peace. We, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to cause a problem. We see something going on that shouldn't be going on. We're, we don't want to deal with that. The Bible says that's not following what God wants us to do. We have to be willing to deal with things in an appropriate way to solve issues. Another word for a peace lover could be self-lover. We are not truly loving other people enough to confront them when they are in serious sin, and we don't love God enough to obey him when it's difficult and has a cost. Yeah, do I want to get involved in this situation over here? Not really. I'd like to go fishing. That's not a good plan. You know? But being part of a community of faith, being part of families, we all have sin we have to deal with, don't we? And we have to be loving and caring enough to deal with it and bring it out and take care of it. So let's take a little test here. When a, when a people pleaser interacts with others, his thoughts immediately and instinctively run in the direction of selfishness, anxiety, and fear. What are they going to think? Are they going to accept me? Am I wearing the right clothes? Is my hair down? I was really concerned last week. My, my collar kept flipping up. So I had one of my collars up like this, and I was like, it's not looking good. Put it back down. Finally, here's, here's one for you. So Chris gets green tape, puts it under my flaps, and sticks it down so I'm looking, looking good. It's really important. <laughs> Very important, okay? That's just one of those trade secrets, okay? We saw the tape. I bet you did. Thank you for overlooking it. Um, so here's some of the things that run through our mind. Am I not, I'm not prepared to meet this person. What does he think of me? What if I make a fool of myself? That's always a possibility, isn't it? Uh, I can't reveal too much of myself or he'll, he'll, he'll know that I'm not really... Who, you know, someone he's going to like or he's going to reject. So, so what, can I sh- what can I tell them that I won't get rejected? So we're careful in what we say to people. Um, I can't bear the thought of losing his respect or admiration. I have to be careful not to say anything that might bring on a conflict. Is this, is this, who, is this ring true for some of us? That in every situation we're measuring, trying to figure out how this fits together. Another word for, as we said, is um, peace lover. Okay, so number one, uh, number two, we desire the praise of of men above the praise of God. That's our second indication. It's the flip side of the first one. We fear displeasure. We're looking for praise. What were the Pharisees' motives? Every good spiritual things can be done with a hypocritical motive to gain man's approval. Matthew six fifteen. This was the Pharisees. This is why somebody calls you a Pharisee. It's not a compliment. And we'd love to say that the Pharisees died in Jesus' day, and that's the end of Pharisees, wouldn't we? Okay? 615. Um, That's not the quote I'm looking for. The whole emphasis of of Matthew 6 is what? Do your good works where? For people to see or for God to see? If you're going to fast, what do you need to do? Cover yourself with oil so nobody knows you're fasting. If you're giving, don't let your left hand know what your what? Right hand is doing. 
If you're praying, go into your closet where no one can see you and pray. So who is your audience? God. What did the Pharisees do? They didn't pray until it came time to stand on the street corner, and then they could pray glorious prayers. The Pharisees loved the approval of men, and they loved to be accepted by men. The people pleaser is a Pharisee at heart. His religion is more external than it is internal. His motive is a desire to look good in other people's eyes. His first thought is not how will God be glorified by what I'm about to do, but rather how will others perceive me when I do what I'm about to do? How are they going to perceive me? I can't, I can't come to church today. What are they going to think about that? We went witnessing. I didn't share my faith. I came wearing this outfit. I wonder what everybody's going to think about that. I just lost my job. What's everybody going to think about that? Oh, my goodness, this is for parents. My child is completely out of control. What are they going to think about that? I mean, it's one thing to have your child out of control in your household. It's another thing when they go public. (laughs) They're on aisle number three. Please get an assistant manager to aisle three. We would love to say this is not something we deal with, wouldn't we? The reality is there's probably a tinge of people-pleasing in everything that we do. We'd like to say, ah, I got that rooted out of my life, no problem. Uh, let's not be quite so bold or so, or so confident. And the big question is, what will I gain from it? Again, the whole thing is people are my audience... And they're my audience so that as I, as I perform, I will receive something from that. So which are our thoughts more like? Am I, am I focused on God and what he's going to think about this? Or am I focused on what everybody's going to think about this? Okay. Number three, we become perfectionists. Okay, we become perfectionists. It's one thing to try to do everything right for the glory of God. It's another thing to be perfect so that everybody has this opinion of you, this view of you that is so valuable to you. Evaluate your own heart to see if you are striving for excellence with a desire to glorify God or if you're enslaved by perfectionism and performance-based living due to a fear of rejection. I mean, we're parked in Colossians, and Colossians is all about what? You... Christ is your total source of everything you need. Yet, the false teachers were coming in and saying, oh, you need Christ plus this. You need Christ plus that. If we're people pleasers, it's going to take a while to root this out of our lives. Number four, we study what it takes to please man as much as, if not more than, what it takes to please God. We're really very alert to people and, and what they're doing. The people pleaser is so intent on gaining approval that he listens in- attentively to others when they talk about things they don't like or they don't agree with so as not to say or do anything that might result in what? Rejection. Why is this so important again? Because pride is on the throne. And what does pride do? I want to be exalted. 
if I do anything that, that this pleases any person or that they find fault with, what happens to my image? Cannot have that. We cannot have my image going down for any reason, shape, or form. I must be exalted. So I'm particularly careful about what people think about these things. He is often inordinately sensitive to the countenances of those he's trying to please. So he's even watching your face. And if you have a little bit of a look on your face or a little bit... What, did I say something wrong? I mean, there's there's this paranoia based upon this person. When passing people in the street or at the church, he studies their faces, looking for clues that might reveal their level of approval, usually reading more into facial expressions than one can possibly know without further verification. He adopts others' beliefs and convictions without studying out for himself what the Word says and becoming fully convinced in his own mind because, after all, his main goal is to earn the approval of others and enhance his own reputation. And the easiest and most sure way to do that is to adopt the same convictions and standards they hold. That's a real question. Do I really go to the Word of God, sort through what I believe, come out with my conviction, or do I put my finger in the air, check which way the wind's blowing, find out what everybody's doing, and then I find myself believing what everybody believes and doing what everybody does. That is a problem, isn't it? If you go into a strongly charismatic church where speaking in tongues shows what? Spirituality. What are you going to do? Here it comes. You know, whatever we're going to... It's going to come out. Or we come into a church where missions is everything. Guess what, guys? I'm going on a mission trip. Or if we go to a church where humble service in a soup kitchen is, is, is very vital. Guess what? I'm the first one to sign up for the soup kitchen. Or, you know, if the doctrines of grace are the important thing in the church. Okay, what are those, what are those, what are those five points again? Loop tip, lip tip, tip lip. What is it? Tulip? Okay, let's get them down. You know, because we, we look and we know what it means to fit in, don't we? Or we go to work, and every business has its culture, don't they? And you quickly figure out, oop, did I overdress this morning? Did I underdress this morning? What is the culture here? Oh, can we sit around and talk a little bit? Oh, we don't do that here. We just work from the bell to bell. So that's what I'm going to be doing. We really can quickly seek to fit in. And we get good at it, don't we? All of a sudden, our prayers begin to sound like everybody else's prayers. We find somebody praying, and he has a certain way he does it. Next thing, our prayers begin to sound just like that. We need to be set free from this. That we can have our own relationship with Christ And we don't have to believe everything everybody else believes. We do need to believe the doctrines that are true. But when we get into preference areas, there should be freedom for you, your own family, to decide what is your preference. There's a lot we talked about last week in the sermon. There's a lot of areas God does not give us all the specifics. He doesn't give us all the specifics on the Sabbath day. 
He doesn't give us all the specifics on child training. He doesn't give us all the specifics on church leadership. He doesn't give us all the specifics on how to educate your children. He gives principles. There's room to be different. And yet, unfortunately, in some churches, if you don't walk in lockstep with what everybody else is doing, you are going to be judged. And that's wrong. And you should be able, even if they are going to judge you, to say, guess what? I'm serving an audience of one. Now, if I'm in sin, if it's clear what I've just done is sin, then, I'm not, then, then I need to be dealt with. But if it's an area of preference, and we differ, the Bears and I differ over something, how tall the shells need to be in the house or something like that, we can live with that. Okay? But you see how people-pleasing can really... And then here's the issue. Now you see how cults work. You have people who need to be accepted. They need to be verified. And you have a leader who has to have the praise of people. He lives for it. It's all about him. And he knows that the people who come are needing to be accepted. And so what does he do? He offers friendship and acceptance. And we all walk lockstep in all that we do. And do we really look at the scriptures to see what the scriptures say? Mm, not really. We just know that brother so-and-so said that's the way it's got to be. Therefore, we're locking lockstep. Okay? All right. Number five, we fail to share the gospel out of fear of how that person will respond. Ed Welch points out, Sometimes we would prefer to die for Jesus than to live for him. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be easy? If making a decision for Jesus means that we might spend years being unpopular, ignored, poor, or criticized, then there are masses of Christians who temporarily put their faith on the shelf. In other words, kill me, but don't keep me from being liked appreciated, or respected. I mean, it really is pretty ridiculous. But that's who we are, isn't it? We are fallen men. Aren't the most popular mission trips the ones that take us far away from our neighborhood? Russia's easy. Our neighborhood, that's a little harder, isn't it? Yes, they put us back into their neighborhood, don't they? <laughs> Number six, we are passive in our relationship, waiting for others to initiate love, reconciliation, leadership, etc. So why are we passive? Because we're not sure well, what's the right answer, right? So we don't know, okay, well, where do you want to go eat? I don't know. Where do you want to go eat? Oh, yeah, that's where I want to go eat, too. Yeah, let's go eat together. That'd be great. Let's do that. Okay, well, what do you... So what do you think about, you know, whatever the issue is? Oh, oh, what do you think about that? Because I'm afraid if I tell you what I think about it and you don't agree with me, we're gonna, it's going to be 
here we go. I didn't please you in that way. Number seven. We use words for the purpose of flattering others thinking well of us. How do we get people to think well of us? We're constantly heaping out the praise. The speech of the people pleaser betrays his real motives. His words are designed to cover his flaws and weaknesses and to cause others to see him in the best possible light. He's motivated by fear and pride rather than love. The scripture makes a very clear distinction, connection between flattery and people-pleasing. If I have to have your acceptance, then whatever you say I'm going to agree with, and I'm going to tell you you're the best thing since sliced bread. What do they think about that? Oh, oh I, I, agree. I totally agree with that. Absolutely. What, what was it you said again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have I told you that you really dressed well today? You look great. And I just love the way you preach. And I just get so much out of everything you teach. And your family is just wonderful. And here we go on and on, blah, da, blah, da, blah, da, blah, da, blah. Because we need this coming back our way. First Thessalonians 2, 4 through 5. We'll go slow. But just as we have been approved by God, this is Paul talking, to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Wow, there's some meat here, isn't there? For they understood who approved them. Who approved them? God. Who approves you? God. With all your warts, with all your stuff, you're approved by God. And therefore, we're not going to come with, uh, we're not coming to please men. We're coming because God's sent us. And God is the one who examines our hearts. So notice he understands the accountability he has to God. And he knows this. The work of God runs contrary to the pleasing of who? Men. That's the problem with a watered-down gospel. People don't like the gospel that talks about judgment and our sinfulness and we can't save ourselves. Let's water it down. Wow, now our church is full. Isn't that great? No, it's not. Now we have a bunch of false converts. And Paul says he doesn't use flattery, and he doesn't have this, this, he uses the word pretext for greed. The Greek word for pretext means pretense, especially in the disguising or cloaking of one's real motives. There were people who did come preaching the gospel. And they came preaching it with, a, with the pretense of what? What can I get? What are you going to give me? We still have that today, don't we? 
Just turn the channel to the right channel, and you're going to hear it. They preach the gospel as a means to gain. Paul says we did not do that. We did not cloak ourselves in some kind of pretense. We were unashamed of the truth. We were not going to flatter. We were dependent upon God for our resources. And the message we gave, we gave it straight and clear. Okay? There's a lot of people who, and a lot of times they come and they've got, as uh, Priola talks about, this camouflage on. They, they're, 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 they come out and it appears like, wow. I mean, let's put it this way. Anyone who comes with this motivation, are, is it going to be obvious? No. It's not going to be obvious at all. They're going to have the right words to say. They're going to have the right actions to say. Paul says we didn't need a pretext. We didn't need flattery. Okay. Let's talk about, here we go, another little test for us. We love these tests. But first, let's say this. Christians are gullible. May I just say that? Christians are gullible. If we walk into the political arena and a man says he believes in Jesus, he gets our vote. Well, he said he believed in Jesus. Yeah, but did you hear what else he believes in? But he said he was a Christian. Check. Well, you know... I listened to the message he preached, and he talked about Jesus in the message. Yes, he did. But did you hear the other things he said in the message? Well, the people who came to the door said they believe in Jesus Christ. And they just happened to have another revelation of him. Come on in, guys. Let's have coffee and talk about this. This is one of the reasons we need to understand the scriptures is because just because you put some, some Christian cream on the top of the cake doesn't mean it's Christian underneath. Or even if it's Christian, that it's God's plan or will. So we had a party when I was a single. And we had a guy who thought it'd be funny. We were all bringing desserts for this singles fellowship. So he went out in the pasture and put a pile of stuff on his plate and covered it with chocolate syrup we get to the party and I'm looking at this dessert and it's moving don't be deceived don't be deceived okay we need to become more and more discerning Um, so let's go to our characteristics we're almost finished here we're not going to be able to finish the whole thing we're working on it though Characteristics of, of, of communication style with people fearful of rejection. One, rarely is this true of you when you deal with people. Because of your fear of rejection, is this the way you communicate with people? One, you rarely confront sin in the life of another believer. Is that really for his good or your own? He who conceals his sin will not what? Prosper. 
Number two, rarely challenges or even questions the opinions of others when he does not believe them to be kind, true, or biblical. You see somebody saying something that's clearly unbiblical, and you sit there and go. Or they're saying something unkind, and you just go. Three, prematurely terminates conflicts, especially by yielding, withdrawing, or changing the subject. You're getting into a subject where we're actually going to disagree. That's a cardinal sin when you're a people pleaser. We don't disagree with anybody. So we get in the conflict, we get in the conversation, the conflict, we begin to co- collide on our beliefs, and all of a sudden we jettison the conversation. Well, the weather sure is beautiful here today in Hill Country, isn't it? It's delightful. Four, uses flattery in order to attempt to get in the good graces of the person. Five, shades the truth in order not to offend others. Six, finds clever ways to subtly introduce his accomplishments and giftedness into conversations. You find a way to let everybody know what you've done. Name dropping, accomplishment dropping. Because again, we've got to keep our image where? High. Got to keep it up there. Fishes for compliments. Looks kind of like this. Oh, I did so bad on that. Oh, no, you didn't. You did great. No, I really did bad. No, you were wonderful. I just was horrible. Oh, you were marvelous. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, false humility, right? False humility. I did horrible. That's, what, that's, that's how you fish for compliments. It takes, it takes a while to, get, to the, get, a, get that to be an art, but you can definitely get there, okay? Number eight, finds it difficult to say no to those who make requests of him, even when he knows saying yes will not be the best choice. Why do you say yes when people ask you to do things? Have you really thought about it? Does it fit into your schedule? Does it fit into God, what, what God wants you to do that day? Or is it just yes to everything everybody says? That's one reason we're so busy, isn't it? Busy, 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 busy. Okay? Nine. Gossip. Saying things behind someone's back, things you would never say to his face. So... You do have these feelings about the situation. You don't agree about certain things, but instead of telling that person to their face, you go over here and you tell somebody about it. And usually when, there's, when you do that, they did something wrong, which means you did something what? Right. So they get trashed while I get what? Lift it up. Number 10. Gossip's equally sinful and more subtle twin flattery. Saying to someone's face what you, don't, you would never say behind his back. Saying stuff to someone you don't, even, you don't even believe it. But you just say it. Because of the purpose you have for it. 11. 
blame-shifting, and self-justifying language. What's, what's blame-shifting? That wasn't really my fault. That was their fault. Well, it may look like I did something that wasn't right, but it really wasn't because here's what I was doing. Again, we can't take any kind of rejection, and we really don't want to take ownership of anything we've done wrong, and we can't be transparent in that. Okay? All right, I think we'll stop there. We have another page, but I want to... Again, we've kind of blown through these quickly. Um, So there's all types of communication that flow out of fear of rejection and desire for the praise of men. I definitely have been guilty of this in some big ways. Watching somebody do something they shouldn't do and just nodding. saying what was acceptable in a certain situation for fear of harm. It's easy to talk about this in a nice little neutered environment where we're just all sitting here enjoying our breakfast, right? It's a different game when you're dealing with people who can really affect your life in a negative way. And we learn from those experiences by God's grace. And we learn that I need to more and more get my eyes off men and put them more on Christ and live for the audience of one. The good news is there's hope here for us. What we need to do now is to make a right evaluation of our own hearts, ask God to do that for us, and begin to take small steps to change the trajectory of what we're doing. Uh, This lesson will continue on next week. Cody, I know you're glad to hear that. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we are a very fickle people that we would be more concerned about what people think than what you think. Father, I pray pray that you set us free. from the fear of rejection, from the, from the need to constantly have the approval of people, from the need to say whatever we have to say or do whatever we have to do or be so consumed with what people think when in reality we should be so consumed with what you think. Father, help us realize that in this world, people are going to reject us. And even within the church, there may be people who will not agree with us and may reject us. That shouldn't happen within the body of Christ. This should be the place where everyone is accepted, everyone is loved, that there is freedom for preference issues here, and that we're all striving to get our doctrine straight. And that we show the love of Christ to each of us. This should be a place, a haven for that. Father, I pray we would not be guilty of setting up arbitrary standards that we judge people by. 
and that we would not have to export our preferences to everybody else. Father, may we be the, be the heart of love and acceptance of our brothers and sisters in Christ here, where they can be free to study your word, be free to disagree, be free to discuss issues. And be free to live their life as unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.